Welcome to a special episode of the 2017 Outpost Podcast. This is a recording of the Sexuality and Gender Identity Diggin. The Diggin is more personal time to discuss a subject outside of the context of sermon or class. It's more personal taking place in someone's home because we're family. As such, we're unable to use our normal recording equipment, so it might be a bit harder to hear, and we apologize. The sexuality and Gender Identity Diggin starts right now. Hey, so, um... Austin, yes, you uh, pray for us tonight. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we come before you to learn more about you. Um, we come as a, as a family to learn together. Uh, Father, so I pray you open our hearts. Um, we speak straight to them. Um, Lord, as may teaches us, let your uh, words fall on fertile soil, Lord. Um, let us grow together and see what your word has for us, Lord. Amen. 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 Okay, so thanks for taking time out of your Saturday night. I know there's a lot of things you guys could be doing for Saturday. And and um, we're going to jump into our topic tonight. I've, I've been wrestling with this over the last couple of weeks, and I've realized I made a huge blunder in doing this uh, tonight. We, we tend to do... Uh, we call them just diggins, which is just like a, a topic that needs special attention and focus, um, and a teaching outside of the context of necessarily like a sermon or a, a Sunday school class or something like you know, just It's more just something we want to kind of dive into in a little bit deeper way. And, and as I was thinking through this, I realized I've never taught this topic in this context, have an open forum discussion. We'll have some Q&A here in a little while, but... Um, I have taught in a number of other areas, and I've certainly been in countless classes and trainings and seminars and, and my own study, of course. But I realized as I was trying to think through tonight, I realized, how do I do this? Because on one hand, there is so much to talk about. And for so many people, uh, probably most of us in this room, for somebody either close to us or maybe even ourselves, this topic is so deeply personally, uh, the ramifications, the implications of this are so profound, so deep and true to the idea of even who we see ourselves to be, that that to to skim over anything is is to do an injustice to this deep topic. But on the same hand, I also realize, um, you know, when when you hear a preacher whose predisposition is always to be kind of long-winded anyways, and they suddenly say, I just can't think of what not to say, you realize you know, you're, ex- you're trying to give your exit strategy you know, for the night, how do I get out of here, it's going to be forever in a night. And I realize that I'm talking to a group of students who are taking their Saturday night out when they don't have to have any lectures, uh, don't have to have any classes, and to sit in and listen to me talk for uh, the next hour or so might seem like a daunting task. So so when I was wrestling with this, okay, how do I approach this topic? Um, I was I was struck with I need you know the breadth and the depth of what we're talking about, realizing I'm I'm going to do my best to to focus the conversation in really kind of one vein. And and we'll get to that here in just a second. But there's a lot of other areas that I, I may not go as deep into just in my presentation, if you will. And 
we're going to spend half the night basically me just talking and you guys um, listening, but then the other half of the night we're going to spend just with some Q&A. And Ian, on the, behind you there is some 3x5 cards and some pens. If you wouldn't mind just kind of passing those out. As the night develops, if you have thoughts to come to your mind, questions that come up or any of that kind of stuff, um, feel free to write out your questions that may come up. And when we take a little break and all that, then you can drop those in to the basket and I will do my best to, to answer those. But but tonight, you know, there's, there's areas that I'm not going to go as in-depth in the q and I'm more than happy to kind of go there if, if you're going to have questions about, you know, the psychology of it or the science behind, you know, the modern studies and research in this, this topic of sexuality or gender identity, uh, maybe, maybe questions about like, well, how do you, how do you walk with someone through that? Is, is their freedom from this struggle in, in a life of someone who has these temptations or, or dispositions? Um, you know, any of those kind of things, I'm happy to kind of go into or talk about. You know, what does it mean to have a gender identity in our world today? Any of that kind of stuff. The breadth and depth of this, these ideas are so profound. But where I'm going to really focus tonight is in the area of of the biblical defense, the biblical argument for uh, the idea of sexuality and gender identity that I'm going to really focus in on what does the Bible say? Because when we're talking about this topic, you know, you can have all kinds of debates and discussions about, you know, the, the science or the psychology or the, you know, different arguments of this idea or that idea. But, but at the end of the day, really, where we want to go is to push you towards the Lord. Not to me, not to this or that, but to to really wrestle with what does the Lord say about this. And because in that we're going to find truth, we're going to find freedom, we're going to find the true purpose of, of our design and our creation. And out of that, all these other conversations start to kind of focus appropriately uh, through that lens. And... The reason why we're talking about this tonight isn't even so much because, like, hey, I want to Bible bash anyone who, you know, is wrestling with this. I realize that my struggle tonight is going to be really trying to talk about this from this biblical perspective um, without sounding or coming across argumentative or, God forbid, homophobic or any of those kind of things. That this... You know, we did this in our home tonight because we wanted this topic to at least be at some level a relational paradigm as much as we can. Um, because our God is a relational God. And when we're talking about these ideas and these truths, we're going to maybe push against this idea of culture and what does society typically uh, assert about these ideas. And it's going to be contrary to popular culture. But we don't want it to be void of the love and the grace and the relationships that come with the kingdom of God and the relationships that God is calling us to. You know, that there's a preacher I love, uh, Timothy Keller, who says, you know, every culture has 
aspects of their beliefs that line up with the kingdom of God. And in those areas, we find the true fulfillment of those concepts in the kingdom of God. But every culture also has things that we hold in, in contention with the kingdom of God. Every culture has things that are a tension point for them. So you take, for example, the idea of a monotheistic idea of, of religion and women's rights. In America, we love how the Bible affirms, elevates, pushes uh, women up into a place of equality, uh, if not sameness, uh, in in our belief in God. You know, I had a, my philosophy professor in college said, you know, like, uh, the, that Jesus was the first feminist, and you know, whether or not you know, that's true, there's some truth to that idea that he was elevating women far beyond. We love that. We affirm that. We think, okay, all of a sudden we find justification for that in our faith that the world is looking for for why we hold that value. We find it's true fulfillment in our faith. But when it comes to a monotheistic idea of religion, we're like in opposition with that. Our culture hates that idea. Like, why, can, why does there have to be one way to God? Why does Jesus have to be the only way? And all these kind of things. Now, if you go out halfway across the world, say you go into like maybe a more Arabic culture uh, in the Middle East, they're going to be flipped, exactly flipped on that idea. When it comes to be like there's one way to God, they're going to be like, yeah, absolutely. Of course there's only one way to God. But when coming talking about women's rights and stuff, that's, that's an area of tension. Well, we don't know about that. Right, so every culture tends to have things that are affirming, and we find the true fulfillment of them in the kingdom of God, some things that are intentions. And in our society, in our world right now, these ideas of sexuality, of gender identity, are some of the most stark, most affront uh, cultural values in contention to the biblical perspective. And so I... I'm talking about this tonight, when we were talking about what are we going to do for kind of a dig in this semester, we we felt like we needed to go here, not because I'm going to come across and try to be, you know, the wise, old, you know, semi-old, older than you, sage, um, you know, I, I talk to you guys, you guys are like, yo, Nate, you're so old, and I go hang out with pastors in, in conferences, and they're like, Nate, you're so young, are you still a college student? You know, it's, it's all parent, you know, relative, but... But I'm not trying to pretend like, hey, I've got it all figured out. I have all the answers, and I'm just going to like, you know. My The heart of this has been like, we recognize that this is an issue that the culture is actually confronting the community of Christ on. And so we want to be as, as vulnerable, as real, as straightforward, as authentic as we can, while also holding, you know, the the concepts of, of grace and love and and. You know, just relationships in this tension. But most of us probably have somebody or some people that we know that uh, that you know don't believe this, or maybe hold, ha- are wrestling with these these things very personally. Uh, don't believe in the biblical perspective, or or certainly in our culture, we know lots of people, almost guaranteed, if you have any friends, who would see Christianity as as you know archaic. And, outdated and certainly um, irrelevant to or an affront to these ideas. And so I want to at least talk tonight about this idea of why do we think, why do we look at the Bible and say God is actually the one you have issue with. We're talking about this idea of of right sexual context and, and gender identity. 
And so we're just going to kind of dive in um, to that idea. Rick Warren once said, he's a pastor there in California, he once said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with a person's lifestyle, that you either fear or hate them, or either phobic or full of hate. The second is that to love someone, you need to agree with everything they say or do. Both are nonsensical. And so we're, we're you know, going to try to do our best in that light. First, that if I disagree with you means I don't love you, it's not true. It doesn't have to be true. And there certainly are people out there that disagree with you and don't love you. And the culture has certainly taken those paradigms and shown them as, as an affront to, to themselves. But when we're looking at the biblical perspective, we're not in tension of that. We are not trying to create a tension of that, so that we can love you and disagree with your lifestyle. And that to love someone is to agree with them in every way. That That is nonsensical because... Guess what? Some of you guys are going to get married. Most of you guys are going to get married someday, and you are not going to agree all the time with your spouse. <laughs> it just is not going to happen. So to think that that is essential, even though we wouldn't say it that way, our culture values tend to work that way. To think that we have to agree um, in order to love someone, that if I disagree with you in your, in your posture, is to somehow not love you, it just isn't true. Alright, so let's jump into looking at, in that, with that part, with that light, let's look at some of the biblical perspective. Now, I'm not working for my own paradigm solely. I'm not this smart or this intelligent to share everything I'm going to share tonight out of my own wisdom. But I am working from a few different uh, primary sources, certainly my own study and research over the years. Also, I'm going to be leaning heavily on some other people, Brady Bobbink, who's the Kyle director in Western Washington um, University and has done some extensive study here. Uh, Sam Alberry, who is an Anglican pastor uh, and also a member of Robbie Zacharias Ministries. Uh, Linda Seiler, who, who is uh, a woman who's personally worked through this in her own life in a very personal way uh, and has a ministry focusing on issues of transgender and the like. Um, but I will say this, I will, I will give a preface this way, that my presentation, my talk tonight, uh, is a reflection of my, my own personal study and understanding of what scripture says on the subject related to sexual behavior, sexual identity, marriage, and the like. So um, let's jump into it here tonight. All right, so I'm going to turn on TV, just to help you guys out a little bit, you guys can open up your iPhones, uh, your smartphones, your old paper and ink, if you actually have that. But um, but let's look at the Bible. And when we look at the Bible, really what I am approaching, and again, I, I realize we can go a lot broader than this in the Q&A, but what I am addressing here tonight is is very specifically very focused on the concepts of really kind of addressing through the lens of what what we'll simply call for tonight um, the godly gay movement in America, which is basically this paradigm that says I can be 
sexually fulfilled in a in a monogamous covenantal. Uh, they would say, you know, certainly, you know, not embracing of of polygamous paradigm, not embracing of any like sexual deviancy uh, outside of a non. You know, they 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 would embrace almost a biblical perspective outside of the one paradigm that they are not that they are trying to push is a um, non heterosexual monogamous covenantal relationship and so they, they think that in the world today God is okay, should be okay with that that he would be okay with that that the writers of scripture when we get into the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that they're really dealing with with you know tabernacle law or they're dealing with you know contextualized situations for Paul in the New Testament where they if they had seen if they saw the expression of love of monogamy that we see in today's expression uh, of of uh, homosexuality that they would that they would be perfectly okay with that that it is in no way an affront to their faith to once say I am a, a follower of Jesus that I love him and I'm in, in harmony with him in unity with his design and intent and I can be sexually fulfilled in a in a homosexual paradigm and so for them for that context which is kind of underlying a lot of different questions a lot of different angles uh, that's really where I'm going to be kind of focusing in my talk. Looking at the biblical perspective in contrast um, to the argument that you can be a follower of Christ and not be in sin if you are in relationship with another same-sex individual uh, in the paradigms as long, you know, as, as long as what they would say is as long as you're in a monogamous covenantal relationship. But, uh, but we're going to kind of look at that and combat that paradigm. So Genesis 1 um, is the main text that really every other author in Scripture that deals with these concepts uses as their source text. And so we can't go into, into anything else before we address first Genesis 1. And when looking at Genesis 1, it's kind of interesting that the godly gay movement um, almost never touches Genesis 1. It, it has, it's, it's, it's a archetype of, of what marriage is to be, of what sexuality is to be, of what gender is to be, that, that isn't so much even the teaching, it's, it's an articulation of an account, and, and they just don't often touch on it. But Genesis 1 is what every other source in Scripture will use as their as their source text. So in Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Alright, so, um, in this text, what we see um, are a couple of things. We see, first off, that God makes mankind, which is not just male, but male and female. He actually says it's not good for man to be alone. He says you know, he needs a helpmate, a, a partner of equality, but of diversity within the gender. Um, that he can work alongside, and in that, 
uh, we see uh, the sexes elevated. We also see that in that he called them to be fruitful and multiply, that they are called to together, their unity, their marriage is male and female. And in that, that is the, the archetype of how they are to uh, be unified going forward as they subdue the earth, as they advance the human race from there. Um, you know, Genesis 1 is saying that man was not, uh, was not good to be alone. He needed a partner. So from here, from this, we see basically God's design when he creates humanity. That they are made to be male and female and joined together. Now, from this, we see a couple, some other accounts start to develop. And we're going to really spend more time on them. But Genesis 19 goes into Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, some people have, have used that as a source text of arguing against homosexuality. Uh, because Sodom and Gomorrah, there, there seemed to be some sexual deviancy there. Um, it is not clear in the Sodom and Gomorrah account. It's really not a good defense of, of heterosexual relationships by itself. Um, and so we're going to kind of skip that. But Leviticus 18 is really our next one. Leviticus 18 in verse 22, and then also in chapter 20, verse 13, we, we see the Old Testament's um, most specific, most direct addressing of sexuality. Uh, in Le Leviticus 18, verse 22, it says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, talking to men. That is detestable. In Leviticus 20, going on just a little bit further, in verse 13, it says, If a man has sexual relations with man, as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Now, there are really kind of three objections that the, that the godly gay movement would make to the Levitical law. And I want to just address each of them for a couple of minutes before we move on. But the first one is that these scripture verses, when, when looking at this, and I'll say this, the Godly Gave Movement certainly recognizes that this is addressed in Scripture. But what they would assert is that is that all of these things are strictly contextualized within a certain context, a certain situation, and therefore um, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, all evangelical denominations, any conservative uh, fellowships around the world uh, have all gotten it wrong in their interpretation. That it's in the interpretation that, that God is actually accepting, embracing, and, and okay with, with this sort of sexual expression. And so we need to actually really look at what does the scripture say? And what does it teach us? Because it's in recognizing its context that we can actually argue one way or the other for our faith. Um, if someone's going to break from Scripture, then that's a whole different conversation. If they're going to say, well, the Bible is just, I know it teaches that this is wrong, but I don't care, well, the conversation kind of shifts to a whole different light. But if someone is saying, I believe in God, 
I want to serve God, but I think this is okay. We need to be people who can argue effectively to give a, a good defense uh, for their, the scriptural reason for why the Bible teaches what it is. And then, if we do that well, then really the tension becomes with God, not with us, not with our understanding or context. So Leviticus 18, the, the godly gay movement, um, would essentially assert three different assumptions to this, and we'll look at each one of them independently. I don't have notes on this up there for you, but if you just want to track along with me, you can write notes if you have something to do that. But the first assertion is that these texts in Leviticus are related to the cultic law, that these are ceremonially, these are ceremonial holiness texts. So, for example, in Leviticus 11 through 15, I know this is like, okay, I can't get through Leviticus. Some of you guys are like, you know, I've never gotten through that. It's so dry and, you know, it's like talking about molds and what I do. But, you know, it's kind of awkward talking about, you know, women and menstruation. And it's just like, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm just, you know. But, but if you'll bear with me for just a minute, this is actually really important to understand the context of what is being said. Because, because the argument is that these are, are, um, Ceremonial holiness concepts, meaning what? Well, that meaning, what they are asserting is is if you actually go a little bit earlier in Leviticus, notably chapters eleven through fifteen, um, there are very legitimately ceremonial holiness texts. So things that are being addressed are things like if you have mold in your house, or you know what to do if you touch a dead body. Or, hey, don't have, yeah, some of you guys are like, I got a little mold in my hamper right now, you know, it's like, I've seen your rooms, I've, you know, I had a friend who, who said, if I, yeah, I know I have to wash my pants, and he was, he was kind of a fireman in his own fence and stuff, but he said, if I can hold my, if I can put my pants up and they stand up by themselves without me, then I know I need to wash them. But until that, you know, if they stand up, you know, without, so, so you know, they're, they're dealing with all these kind of things. Now, the thing that's, that's important to recognize, you know, talks, they're talking about skin disease, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Um, and modern Christianity, you know, the eating of shellfish, for example. And modern Christianity does not hold that these things are any longer applicable to our lives. And so the, the, the godly gay would, would say, this is in light with that. These are all just kind of ceremonial holiness concepts. These are cultic law uh, rules. And so they no longer apply to the new covenant. Um, they're related to the temple era, or this point in Leviticus and the tabernacle era. And, and that's all that they were for. Um, the problem is, is that one, Leviticus 18, altogether, if you actually read the whole text, the theme of it is sexual purity. Um, it's not just it's not just saying like, hey, this is this is so that in Israel God had a lot of laws and the and the concepts that he seems to be highlighting is be different. 
Like quite literally, that's almost the theme in a lot of Leviticus, is be separate, be different than Egypt where you left from, or be different from the pagan societies that you're walking into in the Promised Land. Be different. And so if you can you know, be different, you'll highlight something different. In, and we see a lot of like great you know, principles in some of these ceremonial you know, cleanliness and holiness things. You know, before they understood like, you know, things about disease like we do today. I mean, it's amazing what you realize if you actually study like science. Like, you know how recent it was that doctors realized they needed to wash their hands before doing surgery? I mean, it's just like, I mean, it's only been like, it hasn't been that long. Right, and so you know, at, for that time, you know, nomadic society in the Middle East and ancient, Israel, you know, ancient times. I mean, some of this stuff is just like, like, yeah, I'm trying to like help you out here, right? If you eat pigs, pigs are dirty. They eat everything. They're full of disease. You haven't domesticated them. You eat them, you're going to like have all kinds of issues. So, you know, but what we would say, well, those things cease to be relevant anymore. Um, they ceased with the new covenant or some of those kind of things. But but they would say, so it's the same thing. But Leviticus 18, altogether, the theme seems to be sexual purity. Not be different, but be pure, be holy. That somehow that this idea that these sexual acts were somehow deviances of purity in a deeper sense. If only ceremonially clean it would assert that those things around it would also be specific only to ceremonial cleanliness. And these texts, so it it should go, if this is only ceremonial, everything around it should also be just ceremonial. So when it talks about around it, it also talks about bestiality. And it talks about adultery. It talks about rape. It talks about incest. In chapter 18, and so it doesn't seem as if the text is relating to strictly ceremonial cleanliness or holiness, that there is something deeper or something more true to morality that is actually being addressed. Um, shellfish, or others like like that, you know, don't eat shellfish. It's actually quite a few chapters earlier, and you guys realize, you know, there weren't chapters back then and all that, but, it, but it's actually, there's a separation here. Leviticus. It's not a clean uh, blend with the clear uh, ceremonial holiness concepts. But um, there doesn't seem to be the same theme that's happening in chapter 19 or 18. Um, chapters 11 through 20 also have a really interesting dichotomy if you actually read them. And you if you read them all in Entirety, you're like 11 through 20 of Leviticus. That doesn't, I don't think I can do that, right? But, but, but if you actually did, just sat down and just read the whole thing, and just really focused on it, you'd probably notice a very clear distinction between these two concepts. Because in one, there's, whenever it was like, hey, you touched a dead body, or you, you know, ate some shellfish, or something like that, there's there, the punishment was very different. You know, it was like, okay, do this, don't do this, you know, keep away from the community for a couple days, make sure you're not, like, infected, like, you know, you know burn your house because the mold's going to spread, or you know, there, there was, there were clear, you know, simple things that you could do to rectify it, and it was just kind of short, like, here, I'll take care of this today, you'll be fine tomorrow, like, by next week, everything's good, but, but there was simply, there was, the, the punishment was just, was practical. The punishment was practical. It was it was 
specific to a very narrow sense of morality. But when we come to the ideas in chapter 18 of Leviticus and in chapter 20 of Leviticus, the punishment is direly diametric to, to the ceremonial cleanliness laws. That there is something bigger going on than, than just you know, worship at the tabernacle or those kind of things. That in chapter 18 and chapter 20, we are actually looking at something that is actually so deep, so deeply fundamental to holiness for the community, for purity in the community at large that actually required a purging sometimes. And that some of these things were even you know, punishable by death. And it, the punishment was drastically <coughs> different. And so in that, we can also see there is, there is clearly a difference between well, the godly gay would say this is simply a, a ceremonial cleanliness thing, and so it no longer is relevant since we no longer are dealing with ceremonial laws. There is a clear distinction, both in its place in Leviticus, both in its its context around it, which all seem to be things far transcendent of ceremonial cleanliness, and the and the punishments of those ideas of purity for the community are so diametric to each other that there clearly is a distinction going on in the eyes of God uh, when addressing them to Israel. And so we would say these things are uh, much more profound in their nature. Second, the second assertion uh, going on here with uh, people who try to assert that this is no longer relevant to today is that what is really being attached here, affected here in this passage is temple prostitution. That, uh, that what, what is being said here in Leviticus 22, don't have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, as a testable, is, is specifically addressing the temple. And at that time, there were uh, those kinds of acts that were happening in, in different pagan religions around them and, and in temple worship and that kind of thing. And so it certainly would make sense if that were the context to say this is very specific to a very specific context, and therefore it's not relevant to life or my life, but simply, you know, when I would go to the temple, don't have sex with male or female prostitutes. Which, you know, if that's true, then this ceases to be a, a big picture moral code, but simply a specific one. It doesn't even relate to us today in our worship of God. And so therefore it isn't relevant either. But again, and it's gonna have very similar paradigms to the first year, but in Deuteronomy 23, verses 17 and 18, we actually see this is actually a clear issue that is being addressed. If you actually look at Deuteronomy 23, 17 and 18, um, they are communicating, the Bible is communicating that idea. Don't have sex with prostitutes, but as a form of worship. Um, but in this context, in Leviticus, there is no clear association or inclination towards cultic uh, prostitution. This is addressed in the context for all of Israel. That the laws that are being addressed around uh, this passage or these passages are all meta narrative, meta picture, not just for the temple but for all of life. And so, because of that, we would argue it's not just talking about like you know don't have sex with you know male prostitutes when you go to the temple to worship it's saying you know the bible has an ability to distinguish and delineate those ideas
but here it's not. Here it's highlighting um, what Israel is supposed to be like as a people, not in just worship. The third assumption um, the third assumption or a third assertion that is often made is that Leviticus is only dealing with non-monogamous covenantal homosexuality. That these concepts are a new thing in our world today that we have figured out how to embrace and accept and create and articulate and picture sexuality in a homosexual relationship that is in a godly light. And so because that wasn't there then, but it is here now, that these things are no longer relevant um, because we've kind of figured out how to do both and, so to speak. But, but and then we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about Paul, but why the this argument actually even exists is sort of a strange question because why in so much of human history, if you actually study it, we are, we are actually, even to this day, far behind in, as a culture, in embracing and accepting of these expressions. And why we think that suddenly now we have figured out um, how to do this better than what the Bible would have understood at that time is has never been given a great argument from the other side. That, you know, why, for example, Paul, I don't get to him, but why Paul uh, asserts these things, even though the Greek societies of the first century were far beyond what we would say in our, t- in our world today uh, in relation to accepting and embracing of homosexual relations. And so why all of a sudden we figure this out now where they never could figure it out then, or how God couldn't articulate how to have those kinds of relationships back then um, are never really explained or addressed well. Uh, The issues in Leviticus is sexual boundaries. That's what's being talked about here. Sexual boundaries. In contrast to the Genesis account. In contrast to what we see in Genesis 1. The the things that are being highlighted, the things that are being uh, distinguished. Things like human heterosexual uh, relationships outside of marriage. Right? So like fornication or... Uh, adultery. You guys know the difference between those words? Fornication is like what you do, like heterosexual relations outside of marriage. Like if you're not married and the other person's not married, then that's that's fornication. If you're married and then you have an affair, that's fornication. So it kind of, Uh, those two ideas. That's adultery. Adultery. Or adultery, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so (laughs) same idea that that these things are, are fornication, that they are outside of the design of God's concept of sexual relations. Um, they may be hetero, but they are outside of covenantal. And so you see that uh, human sex with children is being addressed, so the incest idea, uh, incest, you know, having sex with, with close family relatives. With the same sex, homosexuality, or in bestiality. Uh, you know, sex with animals. So in this, there is a theme that is very clear and very articulate that that it is anything outside of the Genesis 1 account. And so in that, we should see the clarity here of, of the Levitical law standing out in contrast even today um, to these things. 
It's interesting, too, that in the New Testament, um, the New Testament would actually um, clearly fight against some of the, uh, the temple laws being continued into the New Testament. Things, things like you know, having uh, uh, circumcision or even eating of different animals and things like that. Those things Paul directly addresses as, hey, we don't need to worry about these things. Don't stress these things. Don't stress about all this. But when it came to the areas in Leviticus 18 and 20, he reinforces them. So it is interesting. It is, it is telling that the New Testament would try to distinguish um, the concepts of tabernacle law, but also would reinforce these ones. And so you can see the New Testament also understood the writers of the New Testament, even after the covenant of Jesus and the change that he brought through the cross into our reality, were not being affected when it came to these areas. Um, that, they are, that they are something greater than just that morality for that season, but something that's morality for human existence. Alright, what about Jesus? So the Old Testament is one thing, right? Okay, we'll deal with we'll deal with you know the Old Testament, but we can kind of easily kind of sweep that under the rug for the New Testament and the New Covenant and, and who we are now today. So what does Jesus say about sexuality? And and here's the thing when we talk about homosexuality, um, he doesn't ever directly address it. I'll be honest. The, the author of our faith does not directly confront homosexuality in his ministry. And so the godly gay would say, you know, here is, here is the author of your faith, here is the founder of Christianity, and he doesn't seem to be so concerned about it that he was going to address it. So maybe we shouldn't be so concerned about it either. And, and you know, that sounds legitimate. That sounds reasonable. But there are a couple of things that we need to address. And a couple of things that actually, if you look at it, that actually, in contrast to Jesus not addressing um, the Levitical law or addressing sexuality outside of Genesis 1, that he actually does the opposite. Even though it may not be as direct as we see in other places, that he actually does bring that up. So Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 and starting 20, says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Now, you're welcome to... It's okay, I won't be offended. Right here where it says sexual immorality. And actually, Peter... Could you see if you could turn on the AC? I don't. Is it hot in here? Yeah. 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 You guys all showed up, but I don't know if you guys just all got done running like a marathon mile or something. But like, you're, all your bodies are. Thanks, Dylan. It's really cool. Yeah. So we can. Maybe if you, Peter, even if you want, just open that front door. Maybe just let it in some of the air. Okay. All right. You guys with me? Yeah. No Saturday nights, and it's like, woo! But we're at. This this is important as I don't personally I don't think it's dry. I think this stuff is fascinating. I mean deeply intrinsically fascinating. But I do know I do realize you guys are college students and you've been wrestling through all kinds of texts and tests and all kinds of stuff this week. So 
So I understand if it's hard sometimes to focus, but we'll we'll keep going here. Matthew 15. When it says sexual immorality, sexual immorality, the word there is actually porneia. You may know what that sounds an awful lot like. Pornography. Yeah, pornography. It's where we get the modern word pornography. And it is a it is a junk drawer term in ancient Israel in Judaism in the first century to basically articulate anything. Um, anything in contrast to the Old Testament understanding of sexuality. So sexual immorality is basically is the word porneia. It's where we get the modern word pornography. It comes in the, in the Jewish paradigm is any form of sexual expression outside of what the Old Testament Levitical law would have accepted. So in this, in fact, commentators have even said there is no way that a first century Jewish person could have listened to Jesus say this and not intrinsically, instinctively, immediately think Leviticus 18. Like that would have intrinsically been the lens that they would have seen that concept through. And so Jesus, he is is assertive, he is forceful whenever there is a misconception or a misunderstanding or an abuse of some kind of of biblical text or thought, and yet here he does not address the issue of homosexuality. And by doing that, by not addressing it, you know, he's thrown over tables and he's calling people out of like you know their their lack of love. Or in other places, he actually he doesn't just he's not just passive about the idea of sexuality. I mean, you guys realize that? Like, I mean, he, the Sermon on the Mount, he he actually. Ex- he actually, he's conservative. He's so conservative, he's actually more conservative than any of his contemporaries, than anybody in that time in Israel would have ever imagined. He actually takes it further. Sexual purity goes further with Jesus. And yet here, he's addressing a concept where if he was having to have to address a misnomer, they would have all thought sexual immorality means homosexuality. And the fact that he doesn't address or doesn't contrast that, doesn't attack that idea, is by itself an assumption that he was embracing of that perception. That when the Jews said sexual immorality clearly must mean Leviticus 18 and 20, and he doesn't say anything more about it, he is reinforcing the assumption that they are working from. That he is accepting of that concept. Um, He never addresses rape, incest, bestiality, abortion, or other specific issues profoundly to our world today. The fact that Jesus doesn't directly address homosexuality is not surprising. It's not that unusual. He, and we'll get it, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but but the Bible, you have to remember, the Bible is not like a, like a, like you guys have all have uh, texts for your classes. And they're working from a, just a strictly analytical perspective of full picture paradigm of, you know, whatever. The Bible, the beauty of the Bible is that it's written to people in context, in time, in space, with issues and needs. And the Bible, it highlights, there's all kinds of things. Sometimes we think, well, the Bible doesn't highlight homosexuality an awful lot. In fact, we'll get to that. When you actually look at the source texts, it's not like there's a ton of them. And so if you actually, if you try to think, well, there's not a lot of texts here. Jesus doesn't even really directly address it. And the New Testament and the Old Testament, I mean, you know, I don't know what Paul's thinking. I think he's just kind of out, off his rocker. You know, you kind of, you know, if you think that just because there's not a lot of texts, it somehow is a reinforcement of like, really, this isn't as big of a deal. 
you have to realize there's all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't talk about a lot that are deeply significant and relevant. Right? Because much of what the Bible addresses is what is the concern to the culture and the people of that time in that situation. We have, you know, you know, we're talking about like tongues, right? Like, you know, Pentecostal ministry, like, you know, Paul, you know, talk about speaking in tongues, that really weird thing that like Pentecostals like to do. Like, I would love the Bible to talk a lot more about that, right? Like, like tell me a little bit about that, you know, Paul. But he doesn't until the Corinthians have an issue with it and then he addresses it with them to correct the false conception, right? You know, you have, there's all kinds of things, you know, like, God, how do I understand, like, prophecy? Or how do I, you know, there's all kinds of things we wish that te- the scriptures would address a little bit more thoroughly, but they don't always because what is most important to the authors of the text is because they're writing to specific people. They have people in mind, and they're dealing with what they were dealing with. And the fact that Jesus doesn't address homosexuality, knowing that the, that the audience he is addressing would not see homosexuality as something that was acceptable means he never really addresses it because it's not an issue. It's a reinforcement of that concept. Um, What he doesn't say is telling. Um, Okay. Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There were some uh, rabbinical <coughs> teachers at the time who basically said, like, Guys, you can divorce a girl for anything. Doesn't matter. Everything's acceptable. She burns your toast. <laughs> she's out. Like, quite literally... Quite literally, it was that extreme. Get out! <laughs> and we kind of laugh about it, but it's really—it was really a sad situation that was going on because, you know, at that time, and the economy was based upon, and the way that the culture was was founded in a, in a um, sort of way that that for these women it was, it was devastating because you know if you got divorced, I mean, there's not a lot of hope for you there. There's you know, your future is and so and so there. They're kind of addressing this issue with Jesus. Like, hey, what do you think? And and it's actually a really genius question. So they don't really want Jesus to teach them anything. They don't care about that. They're trying to trap him. And it was a genius trap. Because in this context, it talks about where he is. He left, you know, he left Galilee, went to the region of Judea. He is outside of Herod's territory. He's in Herod's territory. And Herod has actually just beheaded... John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, over John addressing a sexual deviancy by Herod, that Herod had taken on a wife that was not appropriate for him to have done, and and John the Baptist called him out on his sin, and he had him beheaded, right? So, so these religious leaders are thinking, man, if we can just get Jesus to say anything, whatever he says, it doesn't matter what he says, as long as, like, he doesn't enforce, yeah, you can divorce your wife for anything, and we, he, they knew he wasn't going to do that. As long as he enforced any form of like, like standards by which divorce is not acceptable, they knew they got him. And then you go up to Herod and be like, "Hey, like, why don't you, why don't you add cousin number two, you know, to the to the mix here?" So, so they were trying to kill him. You know, it's sort of it was one of these questions. It's sort of like saying, "Do you real, you know, asking your mom, do you know how dumb your child is?" 
What, what, what do you say to that, right? Yeah. What? <laughs> yes. I know this was kind of funny, but Duncan used to tell me his dad, his mom actually asked him one time, and his, but she asked her, her his dad, did you ever realize how, um, well, no, you know what, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> there's, there's not a, there's, I don't know, I just... Never mind. But it's one of those questions that there's not a right answer to, right? There's no way to phrase it where it's going to be good. So, is George Bush the yeah. uh, a great president or the greatest president? Right, yeah, right, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. Um, so he goes on, haven't you read, haven't you read, he replied, that in at the beginning, Genesis 1, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is absolutely genius here, right? He, he cuts past the question to the source issue. He gets past the concept. He gets into actually the source issues that he's dealing with. And he says, hey, haven't you read? And it's really funny. Actually, you know, we don't really think of Jesus. We think of him as like meek and mild. He's not being meek and mild here. He is actually, this is like the greatest burn ever. Because he's, he's, he's talking to a group of Levitical leaders who, these guys have not only read the Old Testament, but they have actually had to memorize. Many of them, you know, if they're a rabbinical leader, they probably have actually memorized the entire uh, Torah, the first, you know, books of the Bible. I mean, you can't even read through Leviticus, they had it memorized. And Jesus here is like, in your big study you know, all your life of scripture, <laughs> did you get to chapter one? <laughs> when you were memorizing all that scripture, did you actually get to the beginning? Did you actually read that part? Right, I mean, he's totally burning them. It's, it's hilarious. But he's like, you know. I love it. But he's like, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, you think you're so wise, but, you know, chapter one, let's start at the beginning here, right? But what does he say? He reinforces the Genesis account. He reinforces the concepts of of man and woman and he is here dealing with with divorce he is not dealing with homosexuality directly but what he is reinforcing is he is reinforcing gender he is reinforcing gender and the gender rules and the concept of God's design and in Genesis 1 we see this design that does not give room for homosexuality that Adam by himself wasn't enough that God didn't make another one like him, that to fix it, to fix the issue, he created a woman. That someone that was different and yet beautiful and unified at the same time. And so in that paradigm, Jesus is reinforcing the Genesis account that does not give room for homosexuality. In fact, this is really interesting. He actually goes a little further in verse 10. It says, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry like, they're like, well, if I can't divorce her, then I'm not going to marry her. Which is like, you know, they were so so off base here. But, but, you know, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So what Jesus is saying is if you cannot embrace the Genesis 1 account, 
you should live celibate. That's your option. According to Jesus, that is your option. You have one or two options. To live in light of the of the structure of Genesis 1 or to live a celibate lifestyle. And, and here's the thing I recognize. I realize... You know, I'm not living celibate here. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so... So, and, and to be honest, this is where it's funny, I know. And, and here's the thing, I realize this is where we have to be, we have to be gentle, as, you know, stouts and gracious, because it's easy for me to say, well, well, your options. But, but I realize I'm not in, to, to walk in, I mean, I have, I have friends, man, I have friends. And I, I have to admit, I don't know what it's like. I mean, I can empathize as best as I... I mean, I have, I have there, I have walked with them, I have cried with them, I have wrestled with these things with them, and I have watched them struggle through the fights that was in their life. And I... And I it just... There are a few things that can bring me to tears like that. Because it really is... It's a hard reality. But... But, again, I'm just trying to push you to Jesus. Because what he is saying, hey, here, here's your options. And we'll, we can get into like, you know, a conversation about, you know, is, there, is there freedom? Can you change? And all that kind of stuff. But, but I am just trying to highlight this, this context in Scripture. What is Jesus saying? Here are your options. And, and in that, we have the dialogue to address this. The, the thing that's interesting about Jesus is we say this we say this concept we say well I'm straight um, according to scripture no one's straight no one's straight because to be straight means what we what we mean when we say that is what we mean is we are in line with design and you know what Jesus said you're all pernea you've all you know you've looked at a woman you're not straight. Our marriage, right? You, you've all, you know, you've, you've done this, or you've thought that, or you've been like, that's what Jesus elevated sexual, you know, the sexual concepts such to a level that nobody could live in it outside of his power and outside of his freedom, his grace, and his transformation. No one could live within the reality of what Jesus was saying. None of us are actually living in that way. None of us in the world by ourselves without God's help can live a straight life. And even if we are now, the concept is that we never, you know, there is, we've had that context in our life. And no one's straight, because God's design, God's intention, what he's pushing us to is so beyond what our natural desire would be. That we are all, we've all been called in some way or another to sacrifice. To, Jesus says, deny yourself. It's in denying yourself that you'll find life. But in every person's life, there are things that God is saying, hey, that thing... That you just can't live without. You can now imagine what it would be like to be that you identify as. Some of those things there have to go. That all of us have to deny ourselves to follow Him. But in that we find life because we find humanity. It's why the New Testament. This is this is a new humanity. It's not it's not just humanity lived out to its 
its intention, its humanity that transcends even what our natural state would desire or want. You know, because we all have to, we all have to restrict ourselves in some ways, right? If you allowed your sexuality, even in a hetero context, if you simply let that be the thing that most drove you, that most directed your life, you would never have a lasting relationship because your sexuality, if, if your sexuality is the most important thing about you, you will always be driven by that natural, that's natural, right? To cheat on your wife, to have sex with you know other partners, to have no intimacy. Lots of people can have sex and no intimacy, right? But, but your sexual drive will push you to that. There's nothing about sex that says monogamy or covenantial. Everything in sexuality, God is calling us to a different kind of humanity. And he says, in this you'll find humanity. That's why only in him do we find it. Because it's in him, he has, he has a design. We have kind of just this, these base urges that by themselves never drive us to holiness. He actually calls us to something transcendent other than that. But he is calling us to that. So that, that concept of, of, hey, let's, you know, I'm straight, so this isn't my issue. You know, God is calling all of us to deny ourselves, give up our lives, and through that he will show us life, a new humanity. And so I am saying, yes, for some of my friends, this has been a hard battle. But all of us are going to have things where God is saying, this is the area where you're going to have to sacrifice that, that because it feels natural, therefore it must be right. It's never been a truth that Christianity had ever affirmed. Because there's lots of things that are natural. The Bible constantly says that, and it doesn't matter. Just because it's natural, or feels natural, doesn't mean that it's right. All right. Um, da 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 And this is really where our culture, what are we doing with time? Goodness, wow, okay, yeah. We're gonna, <laughs> just uh, so much. Okay, I'm gonna, we're just gonna fly through some of this other stuff. But, but this is where our culture really has attention. Because on one side, there's this idea of being sexually fulfilled, so what we think that means. And on the other side is to follow some old religious leader or some religious text. And we think the thing that is most important, most true, is to fulfill our sexual desires. Our society would say, this is obviously the thing you should do. Who cares about the religious leader? But, to, but Christianity actually says, no, this is actually the thing that's most true. This is what's most true about you. This is what, where true life is found. And we have to realize that there is that dichotomy, that intimacy and sexuality don't go hand in hand. We, the Bible is full of concepts of, of intimacy outside of sexuality. The world has a hard time with that. In fact, I was talking to a pastor who just recently, he, was, he had a guy who had just started to come into the community and just starting to experience... Yes, Ranger has a good opinion too. But, uh, <laughs> but just... You know, he's calling for his mate. But... Um, <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. He's a eunuch. Let me tell you. So, <laughs> sorry. Was he born one? <laughs> Wasn't born, but he was made. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, what was I even saying? Uh, <laughs> all right. Well. Religious leader. Yeah, religious leader. Religious leaders versus sexual urges. 
You have a pastor. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the society. My pastor friend. He actually had a had a guy in his community, and this guy was talking to a girl, and in the church, this Christian woman, this godly woman, and they were just having a conversation. And whether or not they should have been going as deeply as maybe they did, I don't know. Of course, Kyle, if we're super segregated sometimes, but but they were they were having this deep conversation, and all of a sudden he just flat out kissed her. Just what? And she was like, whoa, 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 back up, buddy. You know, what happened? And he, you know, so then the pastor got involved. Like, what? what are you doing, bud? What, what happened? You know, he's like, I just, he's like, I've never experienced this kind of intimacy outside of sexuality. I didn't know how to even respond to her conversation. It just happened. It just came out. Because the culture around us says intimacy is sexuality. But, you know, you can be sexually active and not be very intimate. Sexuality should drive us towards intimacy. It can be a tool to get us further intimacy. But you can have intimacy and not even have sexuality, too. That that within the paradigm of Scripture, there's all kinds of... You know, the Bible is, is much more articulate about intimacy beyond just sexuality. And, and God isn't calling us. The thing that is true that God never calls us out of is to have a sense of intimacy in the community of God or with him. But what he is calling us to is, is to deny ourselves in the area of sexuality. And that is for all of us, whether hetero or homo, uh, but in different paradigms. All right, let's jump into Romans. No? Oh, I was already there. Okay. Um, New Testament, pass, get past Paul, or get past Jesus, and we're jumping into Paul here, and there's a couple different texts where Paul addresses this concept. Romans chapter 1 is probably the most um, confrontational, or the mo- is really kind of the battleground between the godly gay and, and uh, yeah, and uh, orthodox understanding of scripture, uh, because it's, it's pretty direct, and we're going to look specifically kind of at verse... 21, 26, and 27, but we're going to read this whole passage, or this whole section here. Uh, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being made. Uh, being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over into sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, to the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Um, when it says, has been seen in other people, um, the divine nature, his eternal power and divine nature. You know what it's actually talking about there? It's talking about you. And we look at like creation and kind of look at you know like you know fingerprints of God in creation. That's true, but 
since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities has been most clearly articulated in you, that you are made in the image of God, and that through you these things have been seen. Um, but uh, but there has been a perversion. And man, this I mean, this passage by itself. If I if I was a homosexual man or anybody within the LGBTQ community, I would. And this passage just is so. Uh, an affront to my life, but but we can't get away from it. That there is in this a concept here of of that there has been a twisting, and that is really what it is. That there has been a twisting of God's intent, and that this is seen as a, a deviancy. Um, one thing to see that you know see it in the Old Testament. It's another thing to kind of see what Jesus seems to be strongly alluding to. But it's a whole other thing in the New Testament in the followers of Christ working out the implications of his life to see the strong affirmation really of of uh, the Old Testament Levitical law. Um, and so the godly gay community really has only a couple options because there's not a lot that they can do with this. It's, it seems so clear, and it really is. That to try to address this is is a landmine, a fallen landmine for them. But they typically go one of a couple of ways. They either say that Paul was ignorant of that monogamous covenantal relationship paradigm. We've kind of mentioned that a little bit. But but let me ask this just a little bit further, and then we're going to start kind of wrapping things up. But where, why would that be true? Why would that be true? Why would Paul be so ignorant? That of of a monogamous covenantal relationship in a hetero or a homosexual paradigm that he couldn't see it, because the reality is, Paul was educated. He's the equivalent of our modern day like multiple PhDs. You know, I mean, he just he's educated. He's a child of multiple worlds, um, and not just multiple worlds. I mean, we're talking. He was a child of Judaism and of um, of Greek culture. And the Greek culture was much further along in what we would maybe call the, the LGBTQ agenda. They were much further along in the embracing and accepting as a cultural norm than we are today. And so Paul grew up actually in Tarsus, a, a Gentile Greek city, uh, an educated city, where he grew up in that society. Why would he not have understood this? Why would he not have seen the potential? In fact, um, one commentator... Uh, Writing on 1 Corinthians, uh, his name, I want to get this right, but uh, Thistleton uh, wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians. He references a German researcher named of Wolf, um, who states in his research, he would have known about these kinds of relationships without question. Both abusive forms of homosexuality and genuine loving expressions of homosexuality. We must not interpret Paul's worldly knowledge. He was much further along than, frankly, any of us probably are. When, when Antioch blew up, the church in Antioch, which was so strange, and if you read in Acts, was a strange situation. The reason why it was strange was because before that, Jews were the predominant community in the community of God. They, even in the you know Christian paradigm post Jesus, they were the, you know it's kind of like almost like in our community in the outpost here we have international friends, um, and they're part of our community and we always invite them in from different cultures and parts of the world. They're they're always invited in, but 
let's be honest, we're American community, primarily. I mean, that's the dominant force. That's the dominant lens that everything's kind of seen through. What would happen if overnight, all of a sudden, there was way more internationals than there were Americans in the outpost? It'd be awesome. That, hey, that's great. Praise God. I would love that. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against that. But that's what happened in Antioch. And all of a sudden, the leaders were like, uh, we don't know what to do now. You know who they got a hold of? Barnabas got a hold of him and said, hey, I know a guy who can help. His name's Paul. And he's been out in obscurity for a long time. But this guy would know how to minister to a community of Gentiles. He was such an expert that the early church knew he was the best person to actually contextualize scripture within the modern era that they were finding of the Gentile church. In fact, this guy Paul is telling in this passage does not use certain words that are more specific. We have this word like homosexuality or things like that. The Gentile or the Greeks had all kinds of other words to be more specific in talking about homosexual paradigms. Um, and Paul doesn't use any of them. And I think that's really telling. He uses this broad, sweeping, overarching concept of sexual deviancy, of homosexuality, or of those kind of, those are, those, that's the word he was using when he's talking about sexual relations between same genders. He's talking about this overarching, any expression of same gender relations. And here's a guy, this, this is so telling, because this is a guy who writes so eloquently, so specifically, he uses so much detail whenever trying to write scripture to try to make sure that everyone, in fact, he even, he even creates words sometimes. In fact, in the Greek, he actually creates words. Sometimes he uses a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that you know, everybody understood kind of the source concepts in these scriptures, or these words in the Greek, but he would actually merge them because he didn't feel like he was being clear enough because, it, because the, the, the Greek wasn't clear enough. So he would actually merge, he would create, and here's a guy who would create words to be clear. And here he is, and he could be more clear in the Greek if he wanted to be. He's talking about just like, you know, sexual deviancy with, with minors or with, with boys to men, which was a thing in, in the Greek culture and, and different things like that. He could have used those words, but he doesn't. He uses this overarching in concept that any concept of this expression is seen as shameful or breaking of God's design. Um, all right. Uh, not only this, but we also see, if we look at the big picture, there's not a lot of text, but we realize we talk, talked about that, right? There's reasons why certain things with us based on the assumptions of the people, were only addressed if there was a potential misunderstanding. When talking about uh, this concept, there's nowhere in Scripture that they can actually use to reinforce their paradigm. There is there's no source text where they can work from. They, sometimes they'll use the text of, of uh, the women caught in adultery. Jesus says, I don't judge so they say, you know, don't judge us. Jesus didn't judge, which is a total misuse of that. We, I could go further into that, but I'm going to kind of skip over that for the sake of time. Um, so I think that one's fairly straightforward, unless you'd like to dive in there. The idea that you know, Jesus does affirm at the end, he says, go and sin no more. You have sinned. He never minimizes the fact that she has sinned. But he says, I am showing grace to you. So the fact that Jesus shows grace doesn't articulate the concept that he is somehow in 
uh, affirmation of her sexual deviancy, which was not, you know, a form of lesbian or homosexual relation. It was, it was a, um, you know, sex with a married man. Um, you know, there's. <laughs> we have a couple options. We have a couple options, and we're gonna we're gonna close up here with this, and then we're gonna take a little break. And if you have questions, if you don't, you're probably not thinking that deeply because I'm not that great of a teacher. I haven't covered half as much stuff as what we could. So if you have questions, please write them down. I don't know if they pass around some note cards. Write some stuff down, and we will spend a little time just doing some Q and A, um, and we might get into more of this text, or or totally outside of it, into a whole all kinds of other areas, uh, which I'm happy to do my best to address there. But um, really, without God, we have well, really, we have a couple of options. We have either the option to believe that we are okay or our friends are okay or it's perfectly acceptable to both accept a homosexual monogamous you know covenantial or not relationship and to be a follower of jesus and not to see that as a affront to his design we could choose to see it that way we could choose to be part of the godly gay movement but if we do that we i would argue are directly blinding ourselves very specifically blinding ourselves to the reality of what scripture is articulating and so we either have to do away with scripture water it down to where it's irrelevant or somehow blind ourselves to what it's really trying to say our other option is to say well there's no god my values in this area are so great or so profound that you know if god isn't willing to accept me then i don't want anything to do with him but you know we have to remember the full context of Scripture. That we are claiming a God who is calling all of us to die to ourselves. And that for all of us, He died. That He's not saying from afar, hey, just do this, don't do this. I kind of like you know, making life difficult for you. So I'm going to throw a few wrenches in your... He's, he's saying, I'm there for you. I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to have the best intentions for your life. And you're saying to a God who loves you so much that he would die for you, you don't care enough about me because I have this and you don't like this. And my sense of sexual identity is so grand that to, to reject that part of me is to reject me. And so to do that, we have to realize we are walking away from the most intimate, the most loving, the most true and good expression of all of these things. God himself, the creator of sexuality himself, and we're rejecting him because we can't accept what he says. Or third, we have to say, well, there is no God, right? He is, he is God, but he's not good. As that's what I just said. Right? He's God, but he's not good. Or, we have to say, well, there is no God. And, well, I'm getting myself in trouble even probably saying this, but um, I'm going to open up a can of worms. But in a naturalistic worldview, I'll say this simply, and we can dialogue about this if you want. But in a I always think it's interesting, the homosexual paradigm, in trying to justify it. And again, I, I feel like I want to say just this basic concept, but in it, I'm opening up a can of worms, I realize. So, but, but in a naturalistic worldview, what's your justification without God for sexuality? 
Because in a naturalistic worldview, there is no such thing as right or wrong, right? There is no such thing as right or wrong. There, morality is out the window. You know, just because, throw me a pencil. Just because gravity says the pencil has to drop doesn't mean that it's a moral issue. It's simply an abstract force of the universe working upon nature. There is no right or wrong. It simply just is. And when looking at the laws of nature, the laws of you know, specialization and natural, you know, forces of, of biology and, and natural selection, there is no right or wrong. There is deviation of, of the genetic code for adaptation. But you can say, well, more, homosexuality isn't wrong. And you'd totally be right. In that paradigm of naturalism, homosexuality is not wrong. But it isn't right either. Because you're throwing away the idea of right or wrong right. together. But I'd I push it even just a little bit further, even actually. Because if you said there is no God, naturalism is strictly the rules of, of the universe, even though the gravity doesn't have a right or wrong or an intent or design, it does have certain forces, certain principles that it works with. Unless I somehow you know, use my strength and energy to force it up, it's going to go down. There's certain principles that it's working from. And the natural principles of natural selection would actually dictate that the, the principle that it's working from is, is the survival of species through procreation. And so you are actually even breaking from the naturalistic morality as much as there is a sense of morality in there. You're actually breaking from the very principles of naturalism. And so you say, well, you know, homosexuality isn't wrong, I don't believe in God. Well, that's true. There is no such thing as right or wrong in its truest sense. But you're actually breaking from the principles that are guiding even the species now. Uh, in the expression of homosexuality, because it does not allow for the procreation of the species or the advancement of, of the genetic code beyond yourself. And so you cannot find justification just by throwing God out the window. Um, and so then, if you can't, if you can't take, yeah, if you can't do any of those things, then you're left with this question. If God is good, could he be good even in your struggle? And if he can be good in your struggle, if he can be good in your life, if he can be good even in this, then to break from embracing homosexuality or any expression of gender confusion, and I know I didn't address gender specifically um, for the sake of time, but, but within the paradigm of sexuality, it's a good lens to look at gender. Um, we have to address that idea. Like, hey, God designed us with a purpose, with an intent, with a design in mind that he articulated. And he's good. And he loves you. And no matter what society says about, you know, if you don't embrace this about me, I remember Rick Warren's thought, the idea that just because I can't agree with you or don't accept everything about you doesn't mean I don't, can't love you. It's nonsensical to think otherwise. But... But we have to come to the terms that our culture is battling this tension. And in love, and in grace, and in peace, and comfort, and the joy of the Lord, we need to hold firm to the idea that, no, this isn't right. This isn't acceptable. And that this isn't God's design, or His intent. And to think otherwise gives us no foundation, not a biblical one, not a natural one. And it gives us no basis other than our own desires. 
and, and I know that is a hard one unto itself and we can go there but but uh, that is something of an overview of a biblical argument so makes sense okay all right so let's take a break and we'll take like 10 minutes here it's 8 10 we'll do uh, 8 8 20 we'll get together and we'll be done around nine uh, tonight um, but if you have questions go ahead and put them in the basket in the back there and uh, and we'll do our best to address those. Yeah, yeah. If you have any more questions, throw those in there, or we're gonna. I will do my best. If you, I'll say this: if you do need to go, we love you. Have a great night. Don't stress it. But but I will do my best to kind of go through some of these. I can't promise I'll get through everything. Um, the problem with these these kind of situations is that you suddenly become far less. Uh, clear or articulate because you haven't so much preps for everything and anything, but uh, I will do my best here. So, how as friends do we react in love without condoning something that is wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it's hard to give a blanket statement to this exactly, you know, in every context, every situation. Um, the, the thing that you have to remember is, you know, Jesus was genius because he went past the issue and went to the source issue. And, and we need to be loving uh, without condoning. And the world, you know, typically says that's not possible. Um, the world actually has attention, has tension values right now between diversity and equality. Um, these two values are, are strong within um, culture today, and yet they are diametrically opposed to each other um, most of the time, or at least in a cultural paradigm. Because to elevate equality is to say there's something about us that is the most important thing, and, and that is the thing we elevate, and we diminish diversity in, in place of that. Um, on the flip side, to elevate diversity is to say this is what makes me unique and my uniqueness adds value to me. In which case, we cease to have the ability to have equality. Um, the early church, however, seems to have, in a world that was far more div divisive and, and um, you know, you'd be talking about culture wars today, but I mean, early, you know, Greco-Roman societies, it was it was splittering at the sides from, you know, rich, poor, free, slave, men, women, all those kind of things. And yet the church was found to have this unity that was weird. It was generally like strange, um, that that frees and you know slaves and and you know every cultural background and every ethnic background were were worshiping together in equality. Paul even says before Christ, none of these things are real. Men, women, free slave, black, like whatever. It's like these things. Actually, in, I think it's in Galatians. He says, you know, before Christ, none of these things are true, because what he's saying is not that those that those concepts aren't real in the world, but in the state of our equality is not based on who I am or what I've done or attributes about myself, but my sense of value comes from who He is, and my relationship to Him. Um, you know, I. We don't have much for like royalty in America, but if you, you know, you ever 
you know, the you know, watch the the princes of, of England and stuff like that, right? They have value to the society. They have value um, simply because of of their relationship to royalty, right? My children have value to me because of who they are to me, my sons, and and because our relationship comes not from uh, what we do, but because of who we are in Christ. Uh, the early church was able to find this deep sense of value um, in equality. We had equality, and because our equality before Christ was not based on what we've done or attributes of ourselves, uh, but because of our relationship to Him, which was the same across the board, we were able to celebrate our diversity. And so we were able to elevate our diversity across the board. So um, we need to recognize, I think I've got way off track here. What's the question? <laughs> the the idea that is being addressed here, we have to express love, but love not always necessarily the way that the world wants love, right? That we have to express love, right, um, in its truest sense, and that means to fight for their betterment, for their best, as we understand it in Christ, and. And if you confront anything, whether it's passively or, or actively, whether you, know, you have a friend and you know like you know, everybody's celebrating and you're not, you need to be ready to express why you love them, to go beyond the question in itself, the idea that you have value, as a, you know, God loves you, he died for you, that you have this sense of value that's so, so great, so beyond what you could ever have achieved in your life through anything. But I don't, I don't agree with this. We can't back down from that concept. That, that to love them is to love them even beyond how they want to be loved. But if they don't feel love in the midst of it, that's a problem. You know, confrontation without love. You know, we, we say like, you know, if you have to confront, confront with tears because, you know, metaphorically or literally, because unless they know, you know, they might totally disagree with you and say screw you, but they better not walk away thinking this guy doesn't care about me. So that's always the heart. That's always the goal. If your heart is, you know, I want their best. I'm going to fight for that. You know, sometimes we say you have to fight for their futures or even the friendship. You have to care more about them than their relation to you. If you do that well, then, you know, Whatever they eventually think about you or say about you, they should never walk away with the feeling that you don't care. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's no, you know, easy answer to like, okay, in this context, I've got a friend and they want me in, in their wedding and it's the same thing. You know, what do I do? Okay, I, I, we can talk about practicals. Let's talk about the principle. The principle is you need to express love, um, and to love them is to fight for their future with God, however that may look in the context. And we can talk about specifics if you need it. Um, uh, okay, how do you address being born uh, hetero or homosexual if God sometimes uh, made some people this way, I think is what it's trying to say. Um, Okay, so, yeah, the scientific studies, there's, there's uh, I mean, countless 
studies here. I mean, this is, of course, a big issue in society, and there's been uh, any number of, of studies, both between um, um, fraternal twins or identical twins. Uh, they've even tried to manipulate uh, um, this genetic code of, of flies and things, trying to figure out, you know, what's, where's the issue here, where's the context of homosexuality derived from, you know, look at different sizes of uh, hippocampus and, and testosterone levels. I mean, there's, there's, they've gone all over the board. Um, to date, there is no uh, clear evidence towards a genetic um, dictation of sexual orientation towards homosexuality. There are inclinations. Um, sometimes someone will say towards one way or others the other. Um, there was a study done in the 90s with uh, identical twins and showed a, a strong, 51%, uh, was it 52% of, of men who had an identical twin that were gay, their twin was also gay. Um, you know, so there's, there's a correlation, but that doesn't necessarily direct causality. And a number of, just in the scientific community, they, I mean, this is back in the 90s, I was old one, but, but, you know, they pretty much swept that one out of the way, even though culture accepted it and took it and ran with it. You know, New York Times, you know, we have discovered the gay gene and all that kind of stuff. But, but that was way beyond even what the researchers were willing to do or go, um, because there was never a, a good argument against, well, what's the... Um, what's the environmental concerns that you're dealing with? And, and clearly, you know, dealing with identical twins, you know, one researcher said that you'd have to study identical twins separate from each other from birth um, to actually be able to do that, and they didn't. So, you know, there, there's, and even if you did argue that, um, you still have to argue that it's 48% of those who have the exact same biological predisposition weren't gay. So where did that come in? Or how does that happen? Um, so, so um, you know, there's there's been different examples. You know, there's a study of, of uh, I want to make sure I say this right, but uh, homosexual men, I think studying the hippocampus, um, one part was smaller. Um, Within homosexual men than with heterosexual, um, uh, but again, a lot. Of, even the scientific community just said, you know, there's, there's so much here that we just you can't give any conclusive cause and effect here because how they were measuring them and, and what they were, um, and whether or not they were born with a smaller hippocampus, so therefore they, uh, the causality was homosexuality or homosexuality was somehow not developing the hippocampus as much. You know, there's, the cause and effect wasn't clear. Uh, so, so to date, in fact, there's one, actually there was, I know this one was, they were pretty highly crucified in social media, um, but uh, what were their names? Um, uh, well, the professor of psych psychiatry at John Hopkins University here recently, uh, not that long ago, and former psychiatrist and chief for John Hopkins Hospital said he'd been studying sexuality for 40 years. You know, this isn't just some like lightweight in in this community, um, but just at the end of his career, because he knew he was kind of kind of crucified his career when he came out with this. But they, him and a, a co-worker came out with like a 
nearly 200 page paper uh, basically highlighting um, there's no there's no evidence from their perspective of a, of a gay gene um, so so there yeah even if you did go into uh, a belief that there are some people who are predisposed towards or have a higher tendency towards genetically towards things um, that that doesn't necessarily I want to make sure I was answering the question uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, show um, that it is it is in God's design um, you know there's I was telling somebody here's Moments ago, uh, you know, that genetically we have shown that there are strong uh, scientific studies showing that things like rage or or alcoholism are genetically um, connected. That some people are predisposed towards that, but that doesn't mean that we say that's acceptable. Okay, you have a predisposition towards rage, so you can beat your wife. That's perfectly okay. Well, you're just genetically that way. No, that 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 we know that's we wouldn't say that's okay. Um, so our genetic code doesn't isn't the most true thing about us either. Um, now I know in a naturalistic worldview, like that's all there is about you. There isn't anything beyond that. So you, you are just reacting based on environmental stimuli, fizzing, however you are. But that's there is no free will in that. But but in a Christian worldview, we're saying hey, you have a soul. You have something that is actually working upon your being, and even your mind at some level is. It's a very bad analogy, but sort of a computer working within something else pulling strings at some level. Um, that that our genetic code isn't the most true thing about us. That that our predispositions by themselves don't dictate God's design. Um, so the idea that God made me this way, there there's no uh, clear evidence uh, to suggest that's even true. Even if you could argue that people have higher tendencies towards this or not, um, there are things that we see in genetics that people have higher tendencies towards that we don't think are biblical or godly. Um, yeah, okay. Clear enough. We go a lot further and all that, but um, for the sake of time. Uh, does the Bible ever mention sex with children that are not your kids? So. Not incest. So I'll admit, so I asked that question. Yeah, the, re okay. the reason I did was yeah. due to the notoriety of the Catholic Church in the past with oh, you know, priests molesting sure. little boys. And yeah. I just felt like I needed to bring that up, you know. Uh -huh. Didn't yeah. know if, the, if, the, if what the Catholic priest would say was, oh, it's not mentioned directly in Scripture, therefore, I mean, we're okay with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, there's, there's so much. Okay, the Bible condemns sex before marriage. I feel like being, you know, sleeping with a child should be even, like, worse. Like, that's... Yeah, absolutely. And, in fact, you actually do have a very direct um, example of that in Greek culture. Um, that, that in Greek culture, there was an incesticide concept where you would... Uh, older men would take on young boys to kind of mentor them into manhood and adulthood. And it was always, if not... Or almost often, if not always, a... Sexual components to that. Yeah, the sophistic uh, movement. What's that? The sophistic movement in Greece. Okay, yeah, I, I don't know that term, but yeah, yeah, probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, so in Paul's writings, uh, he's 
he's clearly adding that into the mix of, of any form of sexuality outside of, of uh, hetero covenantal relationships. So yeah, um, that that is, I think, pretty clear for all the things that we've addressed for the first hour. Um, and actually, even more specifically, because it was a paradigm, not in religious circles, but within the culture that Paul's addressing, that he uh, throws that into the junk drawer and doesn't exclude it, is, is telling that, yeah, that was very clearly, very obviously um, something he was actually directly attacking. Uh, how does everyone being heterosexual serve the kingdom of God or a greater community? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think. You guys are asking really good questions. I'm trying to think of how to answer them as succinctly as I can without being flippant in the response to it as well. Um, it is interesting. I, I'll say this. It's kind of interesting that Jesus actually highlights um, sexuality will not continue on into eternity. Um because the, another time the religious leaders go up to him and say, well, let, you know, they try to trap him again, right? They're like, well, what happens, you know, the Levitical law uh, said that if a man dies without having an heir, then his brother uh, would, would take over caring for his wife, um, and he would have a son um, as an heir for his brother. So he would raise this boy uh, so that his brother's line would die. Um, and that way they kind of continue on the, the heritage and the legacies of, of, the, of his brother. Well, the Israelites said, well, what happens if, if a man marries a woman, he dies without having kids, and he has like, was he has like six brothers, and every one of them um, takes on the duty of, of caring for the wife, and every one of them dies without giving an heir. Um, they've all essentially been married to this woman in eternity, Who's she married to? <laughs> yeah, right? um, sounds like a pretty legitimate question, although they're, they're again trying to trap Jesus. And he, but he says, "You guys don't know anything. You are idiots." <laughs> he says, "In eternity, you are not going to be married or given in marriage." Um, and so, sexuality does seem to be something that is simply on this side of eternity. Yeah, I can ask good. Okay, well, if it's a clarifying question, that's great, but no, it's not. Okay. Um, so, yeah, hold on to that. I'm going to stir around. But, so why does, sexu- why does it matter? You know, it's, it's on this side of eternity. It's, you know, why does it matter? Well, there's a couple of things. There's a lot of things, actually, that either clearly or we think aren't really even going to be in eternity. Um, some naturalistic things. Um, and so, why why are they moral issues? A couple of things. One, um, scripture always well says this way: Jesus affirms marriage for he never got married, right? He was never married, but he affirms marriage in the paradigm of the way that he talks about the church um, as being his bride. That someday, you know, the idea of heaven is like the wedding feast, is the initiating concept, right? That we are walking into a marriage relationship with Christ, and and anything that waters down, uh, you know, Paul starts talking about marriage in the New Testament, and then he says, "I'm talking about marriage, but really, I'm talking about Christ and the church," right? Like he totally like 
it's like it's almost like abrasive. It's like, wait, wait, you're talking about the church? Wait, what? And you, and you realize like all of the Bible, all of the concept of sexuality throughout the Bible is is a living metaphor ultimately towards eternity that Christ and the church, that Christ and his followers, that there's this, this intimate relationship that is waiting for us uh, with Christ, not personally, but as a corporate identity, uh, the church of God. And so anything that that twists, warps, or deludes um, that design is, is an affront to the, to the picture that Christ is trying to articulate. Uh, with him and the church, <clears throat> so there's that there's that angle. You could try to go deeper on study of, of what are the implications of of that. You know, if we if we you know, break from the design of that, like how does that work uh, in the of the church? The other thing is is that you are also dealing with just the concept of um, of obedience um, that. Um, God is trying to teach us how to obey Him, and it's not arbitrary. For what you know, He's He's trying to say, "Hey, there's a design here." And I know we could go all we could go into like the concepts of like you know the contrast between homosexual um, intimacy and heterosexual. There's definitely sex, intimacy in a homosexual relationship. There's certainly love within a sense of intimate union and dependence on each other. But there is, there is a deviation uh, between the two um, in all kinds of different expressions as the sexes are meant to express. Uh, the beauty of the sexes is that we are different but equal before God, different in our biology, but not so different that we can't empathize with each other in every area. We just have the same things but different levels. And, and that sense of, of distinction brings health and, you know, anyway, I, you know, all that. But, but um, balance and things. But, but when you're talking about um, Christ, he calls us to do things um, in a sense of obedience, to obey, to grow us in our character by saying, do you, will you listen to me? Will you sacrifice me? Will you trust me? And that's for everyone. He calls us to obey, and so if we, if he says, "Here is my intention," and we can't accept because we don't like it or we don't want it, if we can't accept that design, then, then we haven't learned how to submit uh, to his leadership. And, and the the other paradigm that Jesus has talked about is also not just as a husband, but also, but not just that, but also a king, and the concept of. Of marriage, you know, it's interesting. In a contrast, in a contrast, um, Jesus in the New Testament and Jesus in the Gospels deals with people differently. Um, different times, he, he talks to the rich young ruler. He says, "You need to give up all your wealth to follow me." To Zacchaeus, he says, "Zacchaeus says, hey, I'll give up. You know, I've, I've given like ten percent back to everyone that I've, you know, you know everything plus like twenty percent or ten percent of what I stole from anyone I've still stolen from." But he's still seemingly a wealthy man afterwards. She's like, yeah, great. Like, why is there? Why does he treat them differently? Because their heart situation is different, and so he deals with them differently because of that. Now, now there's there's personal context, and then there seems to be corporate um, race context. I mean, the human race. And he's saying, hey, here's my design. 
then you learn to, to live within that paradigm. And if you break from that design, um, you're in disobedience. Is that clear enough? Not going too far. Any follow-up questions to that? It might help me get the mark better. I was going to yeah. ask you to expand on the idea of um, a woman and a man being in a relationship to see different aspects of God because I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think men possess the same qualities that a woman does mm-hmm. of God. I think they hold different values from God. I was curious if you thought it was like a strong argument or a valid argument to suggest that in a homosexual relationship you don't get both of those aspects because they're uh, they're just created differently. Yeah, a copy upon itself versus yeah. two separate concepts. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Um, abs- yeah, absolutely, there's definitely an argument there. We're talking, to get into the idea of, of the sexes, um, it's always an interesting conversation because the sexes express themselves differently Partially be my environment, you know, cultures and things certainly play out on that. Um, but outside of that, um, without without trying to go too far on that, it's it's pretty common sense. I know it's not culturally acceptable or anything, but it's it's common sense that yeah, men and women are different. I mean, you know, and so. Now, what ways? Well, if you highlight anything, you could say, well, the opposite sex has that. And it's true. Because there's nothing that you have that's truly distinct, but you do have them at different levels and they express those, those intensities. You know, you know, Lindsay, again, I'm being overly general, but, you know, Lindsay feels so deeply, and I love that. I, you know, I get to, like, kind of, you know, I, I, we talk about things and she's, like, so excited about something. I'm like, Oh, yeah, I should be excited too, but I don't feel it quite. <laughs> and, and I know that's. And you're like, oh, you're you're, you're just saying you're, a, you know, men don't feel you know, women are emotional. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to say that. Boy, you have no. But I am saying I feel it too. But there is something about you know, our boys know it too, just naturally, right? If they want to roughhouse and play, they just instinctively come to me. If they want comfort, it's like, get away, dads, where's mom, right? Just, <laughs> boom, and that's, and that's not, there's something transcendent of culture and environmental concerns. Now, you know, environmental and cultural concerns sometimes can actually almost push those things to where they cease to be real, but it's going against, the, I, I believe, the natural, like, defaults of the sexes. Now, I'm not talking about biological... Um, issues, you know, they're, they're, that's a whole nother conversation. I mean, you talk about like, uh, I'm not trying to compare the two aside from saying that even in biology there are, there are um, misprints of the biological code. So, you know, I could have been born without an arm. Now, is that original design or, or a break, a, a biological misstep in the genetic code? Well, we say, well, that was a biological misstep. Of the, of the genetic process, that I was supposed to have an arm, but I was born without it. Doesn't mean I'm less of a human. That's why, like we talk about, like my value comes from God, not from, you know, I'm a better athlete than you. Though I'm, you know, every, you know, therefore I'm a better person. We don't say that, but we think it, don't we? You know, it's like the world has to find attributes by which it finds its value. But but we recognize there are, you know, there are missteps of biology. Um, but that doesn't dictate intention, even within the biological code. There are missteps of, of the intention 
Um, now, biology does have a deviation for specialization, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, you know your mom, your <coughs> dad smokes too much, and now you have a disorder. There, there are things that can happen. But those things, um, so, so the sexes by themselves do have differences, and there is, there is the concept of, of the sexes coming together. Not just in, in the biological concepts of, you know, not be crude, but, you know, penis and vagina and, like, the biology of how those things are working for procreation, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, but, you know, at some point we're talking about sexuality. So I'm sorry, not, I don't know. But we should just let it all out, like, right Yeah, sure, left, 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 right whatever. Ah, penis. Oh, ass is a penis. The Pope's a penis. Okay, so, so, Outside, outside of of that, there there does seem to be even a deeper sense of of emotional distinction. Um, there isn't a spiritual distinction. So when we talk about the spiritual realm, there isn't a distinction. We both have spirits. None one's one. None different than the other in the sense of like stuff. You know, made image of God. That's why Paul says there's no difference here when we're talking about before Christ. But in the sense of emotional and physical, yeah, there's differences. And those differences come together are a beautiful thing. Um, this is a over, very much overgeneralization, um, but you know the 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 sex drive is different between the sexes, and and there's a sense of balance of health within the balance of the two kind of working together. Um, if you don't have if you don't have that balance, then you you know you you can get kind of skewed. Um, towards emphasis or lack of emphasis um, in some of those areas. You know, there's, there's you know, pursuits and receptivity of those things that are, are healthy. And, yeah, it's kind of like what you're talking about with two, two of the same, you quantifying something that maybe was supposed to be balanced. Um, so, yeah, I feel like I'm being overly generic, but you guys tracking with me? Yeah, that's good. Okay. I know these things like we could bring in all kinds of like studies and research and, and specifics, but whenever I get too specific, then it's like then you can argue. Well, I have an exception. And like, yeah, you probably do. Like, but we're just talking kind of overarching themes here. Um, <coughs> that's blank. <laughs> all right. Um, what is the biblical backing for Catholic priesthood lifestyle? Okay, uh, yeah, great question. Um, Paul, uh, there isn't, there is and there isn't a backing. Um, never in scripture does it say if you're going to be a leader in the church that you should, you have to be um, celibate. celibate. Thank you. Um, as they were articulated, in fact, I, I, this is just me personally, I think it was, it was a misstep of the Catholic Church to over push this as a standard. Where the Bible didn't push it as a standard, uh, which is why we've gotten in trouble where people are trying to like, you know, be leaders in the church, and then the sexual deviancy that maybe has come out because um, they weren't. But um, but it does highlight it as as a good thing, as a good thing. You know, Jesus says, "Hey, you know, if you can live this way," in, in Matthew was it twenty five that we were. At earlier tonight, like, hey, if you can live celibate, 
You know, accept it. It'd be good. Paul says, hey, I, you know, if you're not burned with desire, then get married. But if not, hey, you can do more for God. Um, and that's not an absolute statement, but he is kind of making this assertion like, hey, you know, I'm out here. We're about to, like, experience persecution, and we got to get the gospel out, and we're going to be, like, hiding in, like, caves for, like, the next, like, 50 years because, you know, Roman, you know, so, so like, hey, yeah, there there is a context of, of reality where it's actually better to be celibate. Mm. You know, it, it, no question, because the level of flexibility, the, I mean, I even talked, Lindsay and I even talked about, like, it wasn't enough for us to find, have found each other and found a good mate. It was, it was that we had to find each other in the right timing of our life, too. Because in my season, before that, it would have been bad. You know, I mean, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to live on 10000 a year and just, you know, be a MA at UNC back, you know, back in the day. And I didn't care. I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, whatever. I'm college, practically like a college student. I'm going to do cancer ministry. Go to Texas for a training? Sure, why not? Let's do that. But, you know, move, put through all my stuff that I own in the back of a 3000 GT and drive down to Texas on a whim. You know, it's like, oh, no big deal. But there's this level of flexibility. You're like, hey, I'm going to spend, you know, 90 hours just hanging out with guys every week all the time, nothing else to do because I have no wife to go home to and no one's going to be concerned about me not being there. Yeah, why not? Sure. You know, so there's a there's a context of, like, investment in the kingdom of God that is special and unique. Now, this season, goodness, I need Lindsay, right? Like... Because for a lot of reasons, one, because I'm just, you know, sometimes I'm an emotional wreck, like, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, she can comfort me there, and I'm like, you know, I feel better. But also because, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, but <laughs> because, too, like, hey, to do ministry, to be a, you know what, it, how, and people can do it, and people do do it. But you know how I would be limited as a minister to be a single guy ministering to college students? And all you college girls, you know, it just, I, I have a wife who's a partner who can actually like, you know, minister to you. And I, and it's, it's not strange. You're not worrying about like, you know, is that old single guy like flirting with me? (laughs) You know, there's a whole paradigm that was opened up to me in ministry because I have a wife. So, so is it, is it, was biblical backing? There is not a statement that this is how it has to be, but there are articulations in Scripture that, hey, this can be a good thing. Um, the Catholic Church took that principle of, hey, this could be a good thing, and saying, hey, if you're going to be a leader, you should hold to that good thing. Um, and maybe, you could argue, maybe it was a misstep of theirs, but, but it wasn't a biblical. Yeah, I was just going to say, too, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and my priest was actually married with a couple of kids. He used to be a Methodist pastor or something. He pretty much said what you said. He was like, I can't imagine doing this like without my wife. So I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he thinks it's a misstep also. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to be careful there. Because if yeah, you, you exactly. come from a Catholic background, like that's, uh, I, this, that's my opinion. That's just my thought. But there is biblical argument for why yeah. it can be a good thing. I was just going to say, like, my, I should have told you sooner, my uncle is gay and he's been dating a guy for like good 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to get married, but it's like, it's, they're they're wonderful. Like we love them both like a lot. And sure. it's like and my my parent like yeah, I was raised Catholic as well. Like my my mom's like con- very conservative, but like, she's like very happy with the two of them being together. And it's like mm-hmm. I just wanted I'm just like I came here today because I was really curious to, like what outpost how outpost feels about this really touchy subject on like human sure. sexuality or or like sure. gender identity and how it ties into like God's like but what does it's like what, I'm just thinking, like with transgenders, like what does the Bible say about you know? It does the Bible say anything at all about you know disagreeing with the gender you were born with? I don't like. 
Disagreeing with the gender, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, do I have time to go and all that? Uh, honestly, I didn't. I didn't study the transgender issue quite as much in preparation for tonight. Um, there is a there is a lady um, who I'll just refer you to. Um, Linda Seiler. Linda Seiler. Yeah, Linda Seiler. Um, now, if you're coming from that background, you're probably going to totally disagree with her and really be ticked at her. But she does it. She does it very lovingly and gently as best she can. But she actually was transgender, lived transgender for 20 years or something in her adult life. Um, very much saw herself as a man, biologically a woman. Um, and and um, she she finally came to this, she kind of rejected God in the process. She finally came to this place of saying, "Okay, I got to deal with this," because she had Christian heritage, but she knew that was not the paradigm that Scripture showed. Um, and I'm not going to try to even pretend like this was like it was as simple as this. But one part of her journey now she is not any longer. She sees herself as a woman, and her whole concept of, of self changed. Um, but it, it changed because she, what was it, she spent years like doing a study of not just what it meant to be a child of God, but a woman of God. And, and you have to ask this question, what is most true about you? What you feel? Um, or what he says about you? And the world would say, well, duh, what you feel is most true about you. But, but for the Christian paradigm, again, to say all those, not to overemphasize all those things, the, the Bible says that's not what's most true about you. What I say about you is what's most true about you. And we live our life trying to learn to live in light of that reality. But very little of what God says about us is, is natural to us. Like, you know, you are, you know, what, uh, what, whatever it is, you know, like everything he calls us to, everything he's, all the do's and the don'ts that he says is a calling to us to a standard that doesn't make sense to us. You know, like, hey, you know, even if you think of a woman lustfully, you're like sinning. Like, what? That doesn't make sense. You know, be my, you know, to, to have this covenantial, like, I don't have to, you know, I can't have sex with multiple people. Like, every time I see a, you know, another, Potential partner, you know, biologically, that the, that drives that drive is not natural. And yet, God is saying this is what's actually more true about you. Um, and and but there's where freedom is in how He sees us. And um, she just began to actually study Scripture and let the truths of the Bible actually like affect her outlook. You know, we say I say this sometimes like. Feelings, and I know what I feel is, is bigger than necessarily this, but what I, we say if feelings are great servants, they're horrible taskmasters. You know, I feel like I'm, I feel unforgiving, so therefore I'm not going to forgive them. Right? I feel a lack of faith, therefore I'm not going to step out and trust God. Right? Like if we let what we feel be what's most true about us, our destiny will be very much directed by our feelings. But let me tell you, feelings are horrible. <coughs> Taskmasters. I was a, my dad was making fun of the concept of always following your heart. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, 
my heart tells me to eat this cheesecake. Well, that's not your physical heart, obviously, yeah, but you right. still shouldn't do it. Sure, sure, yeah. And, and, well, let me tell you. Yeah, that's it. Let me tell you. I mean, these things are not... I don't want to take that. That is funny, dude. I, I, but I want to not be flippant about these things. Because I mean, dude, there's there. I mean, like I said, I have friends, man, and they wrestle with this stuff, and they wrestle with this stuff, and man, it is heartbreaking for me to like watch them go through this. I mean, because I love them, and and it's it's not so easy as like, hey, you know, slap them over back of the head so they snap out of it, right? We can get into like, you know, my thoughts on common causalities of, of some of these things, but um, gender identity is, is something, even, even studies, there is one uh, researcher who even refuses um, to say that sexual orientation, until the age of 25, they refuse to even say that sexual orientation is set because of the dexterity of, of what they're discovering, sexuality, and yeah. experiences, and and what has been said over you, and what's been said about you, and environmental concerns, that environmental concerns can keep pushing you, um, even to a point where like your your mental, hormonal, whatever, but but even to like the age of 25, is it's, it's not set. It's, it can be manipulated, and twisted, and changed, and, and, you know, one study, actually, what was the study done by, uh, uh, sorry, I've got like 20 pages of notes here, but um, there was one researcher, uh, what was, I'm trying to remember the exact school, um, oh, at Columbia University, that's what it was, Professor Robert Spector, um, at Columbia University, well, Columbia University is actually very liberal um, in, its, in its outlook on most things. And so the, the, the head of psychology, or the psychology professor here, this is a little while ago, in 2004, but they did a study that showed that actually from their study suggests that highly motivated um, homosexual people um, can change their sexual orientation. Hmm. Um, and so that they can actually, you know, feel homosexual tendencies, and then they can change that. Um, now, you know, of course, this is very you know, politically charged and and all that. But that was that. You know, he's not a, he was not a Christian or anything. He just working from like this, the research that said, you know, highly motivated people, it, there's inclinations or indications. Um, you know, before <coughs> before two thousand or before the seventies. All research and you know American psychology and all that kind of stuff says you know yeah you can yeah you can you can choose uh, to some level um, your sexual drive um, after the 70s it all stopped um, but if you actually do the historical study it's more charged by what was acceptable culturally politically um, and the like that that you know some of those things were probably driven more by that than that. any any evidence of research to show to the contrary. And and if you actually study, um, I know I'm working from like, you know, Christian you know, world view here, but but if you actually do the research, there are countless examples of people who do, who have claims, I was this way, and, I, and I'm, I'm not anymore. 
And so, you know, we can talk about the debate of, of that. You know, the gay community typically would respond to that. You know, that's to, to even suggest, you know, it actually, it's so politically charged in California to do um, therapy. Um, um, what do you call it? But basically, gay conversion therapy. What's that? Gay conversion therapy. Yes, that's the extreme of it. Yes, but even even to you know treat homosexual feelings as a symptom of of you know the extreme cases of like hey my uncle when I was thirteen came in my room um, and my sexual you know environmental condition changed. Now, I'm not saying that's every situation or every context, but boy there has been shown evidence of cause and effect of some of those kind of things. And so, but they don't even let you like. Basically, address that uh, in psychology. It's against now. It's probably going to be overturned by the Supreme Court because um, it's freedom of, of speech and thought. But, but um, you know, it's a very politically charged issue. So when we talk about the idea of transgender, uh, the feeling that I am the opposite sex than my biology would tell me. Um, I don't know enough about it to, to tell you to, to, that I really understand the neuroscience behind it or any of that. I can tell you, um, if you want to study more, talk, look up the website for, <clears throat> for that lady. She, she you, know, you can say whatever you want to say about it, but she lived that, she was that, she was that for decades and uh, began to pursue God in part of her journey, again, not to be flippant about it, but there was a journey of this for sure, but part of her journey was just looking at the Bible, seeing how God saw her and accepting that is more true than how she felt and and her feelings actually changed um, now not to say that she maybe never would have temptation you know towards that or something but 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 her outlook started to change her outlook of herself her outlook of her environment began to change you know here when I say this example hear me in the heart of what I'm saying in the context of what I'm trying to say but like because it's not this simple, but but when my boys every day they they're little toddlers and pre you know they feel all kinds of things, and if I let those feelings just rule, I feel like candy. I feel like jumping on the bed. I feel like crying. I feel like having a tantrum in the middle of you know because I didn't get my way. If I let those feelings, those are legitimate. They're who they are is what they feel. What they feel is this, so therefore it's okay. Whatever they feel. If I let that go. Habits and trains of thought. I mean, talk about the neurological, like how we think affects, you know, they, they've shown like our, our subconscious is based upon conscious choices and thoughts. And man, the power of words over people. I'm getting all over the board here, but power of words, you know, what people have said about you, what culture has said about you. Um, so, um, so, you know, I have to, I have to help them you know, no, this is not okay to think this way. It's not okay to feel this way. Now I'm going to help you work through it. I'm going to help you. Know, I'm going to help my little boys like learn. Like you know, no, you can't have a tantrum. It's not acceptable and appropriate response to have a tantrum every time you don't get your way. Now the first time, they just feel it, and so it's just this like. Wow. But I'm going to like you know work with them. Like hey, you need to learn to like. And, you know, the next time, they're not. You know, I tell them they can't have something. Then they're you know, it's like. Oh, I feel sad, but okay. And the third time, it's like it's amazing. Like your emotions start to align. Like, oh, okay. No, no biggie. Right? I've, I've disciplined. <coughs> I've also, like, I beat my body. It's like the idea of like I discipline 
my mind. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That your mind, 2,000 years ago, he knew more about modern psychology than what we're just now discovering. That like by what we think about, our mind is actually being reworked, <clears throat> rewritten. And and again, I'm not trying to be overly flippant here, but but we can see that what we feel is not what's most true about us. We need to learn to let our reality align with what God says about us. And that, and when we do that, again, that's a flippant example, but it's sort of like my voice. Eventually, what I think and how I feel will start to align with what I know is okay and not okay and true and not true. Like, no, you can't go running off into the streets. You know, like, I care about you, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, Preston's at this age right now, whenever we, he's starting to walk, and I can actually walk with him. So whenever we're in the streets, I'm always like, hold hands. And he's like trying to, you know, get away from me. I'm like, no, you have to hold hands. Jude, he's a, we've already worked through this with him. So every time he walks out the street, he immediately turns and grabs my hand, right? Because his emotional response is dictated based on his experience and what he is, what, you know, healthy discipline and perspective he's been taught. When in this context, this is how I think. I need dad. I need his hand. Because that's safety. And culture has sometimes taught us what is safe and there's nothing there. And we're running into the street. But when we turn to realize that what God says about us is most true, it's like holding that hand. And we find that eventually, well, actually, you know, we're going to discipline our lives. It's just the default to all of a sudden becomes what's true. Okay. That's good. Okay. Um, yeah, if you guys need to go, please. I want to be sensitive to any questions. I got a bunch more questions, but if you need to go, please, guys, get out of here. Um, no biggie. Who is not eating dinner? <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Okay, Give me right two seconds. If you need to go, go. Give me two seconds. I'm going to answer one more question, and then we're just going to call it a night. I want to answer whatever one looks best here. I'm still here. Like save me. I think that one I'm mostly addressed. Don't save Are people who identify as homosexual allowed to be small group leaders in the Apple's community? Uh, it depends on what you mean by homosexual. If it means like I feel this way, but I've surrendered it to Jesus in the way that Jesus says, like, hey, some are eunuchs, they just don't have sex, um, yeah, if you submit to Jesus. If it's like, hey, I'm embracing of this lifestyle. Uh, if Jesus were here now, would he directly address the problem of homosexuality? I can't put words for Jesus, but I would say probably, because that concept of like what's, what's relevant to the culture is what was always addressed in scripture, and I'll tell you, that's why we're addressing it tonight. Not because I enjoy, like, hey, let me confront this issue, but because I think I need to address what is. For if I was in the, if I was in a culture that, you know, never assumed that this was wrong, I would be addressing it. And so I think Jesus would be addressing it today. Um, what does it mean to deny yourself? To what extent should someone go? Um, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. To what extent should you go? To Jesus. That's the answer. What does it mean to deny myself? It doesn't mean to be masochistic. Whatever I want to do, I don't do. That's, 
I like it, you know, it's twisting, the twisting of it. What Jesus is saying is, he's using a parallel, as shocking as it is, he's, he's creating an image. In the first century, when someone who was condemned to death by the Roman rulers was executed by crucifixion, they would take up their cross and they would follow the centurion to the place of their death, where the centurion would kill them. What Jesus is saying is he's actually creating a parallel. As shocking as it is, he's creating a parallel. He's saying, I'm the centurion. Take up your cross, follow me, and I will show you the place of death. The difference is the centurion is forcing someone who doesn't want to die, you know, right? If any chance, will escape. But Jesus is saying, you have to deny yourself. You have to choose to follow me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you to deny yourself. But I'm gonna, the only way you're going to die is by following me. The only way you're going to find life is... And, and what does he mean by that? Well, he means, he means a, a billion different ways, but the concept of like going past my biology, past my environment, past my culture, to go beyond all those things and to say, God... I feel selfish. I want to do my own thing. I don't want you, but I'm choosing you. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to do what you say, to believe what you say, to, to serve you, even when I do or don't want. That's a denying myself. But if I do that, I'll find this freedom. Right? My boys, if they live that way, they'll just live. Every time they don't get their way, they'll have a tantrum. And they, people who grow up that way are emotionally insecure oftentimes because they have, you know, they don't, you know, when every time the teacher says, you know, you know, you have to do a homework assignment, but they are in their heart, they are actually emotionally, they are that, mm-hmm. that, you know, because it's all about what I get and what I don't get. They've never learned to, and so Jesus is saying, hey, follow me, and you're actually gonna find freedom. Oh yeah, it's like you're gonna freedom in that. I I think with parents, like just I'm thinking in your case, like you tell your kid not to do something, they're just gonna want to do it more. If you tell them to do something, they're just gonna want to do it less. Like if you like tell you tell yourself like. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. You're just gonna like be even more, even less motivated to do their homework. Reverse psychology. Uh, there can be some truth to that. Um, although that's 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 not always true. I mean, if if you say do this and you say the heart of why, you know, if the Bible, if you hold that true strictly to the Bible, then everything God says you don't do, and everything God says don't do you should do, which leads you to a whole different place. God's told you this because. But he also told you his heart. I love you. This is for your sake. And if we can trust him, then we can obey him. But, but to deny oneself is to say, God, what you say is, is my reality, not what I say, or what I think, or what I feel. And in that way, we deny ourselves. And when we deny that, we follow him. When we follow him, he transforms us in a way that we can never have imagined. And, and that's where the new humanity comes in. Mm-hmm. So how do we deny ourselves? We don't deny ourselves to be masochistic. You deny yourself when Jesus says, do this, don't do this, act this way, be this way, live this way, fight for this. And not just in the Bible, like, but even in your relationship, even in your personal relationship, when you hear his voice, that inner calling, hey, when he's leading you, that is, that you, you follow him. And it feels like he's taking you to death because it's like, Nothing about it is, is always natural. You know. But in that, we find freedom for the things that bind us. And in that, we find humanity as he 
directs it and creates it and shapes it within us. So that's how we know. We follow him. We get close to him. We love him. We pursue him. And he leads us. And he's doing that today. Of course, certainly scripture, that's certainly one form. You know, Jesus in the end of Matthew said, Follow, you know, yea, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. The story of the Acts, the New Testament, is that everything he was doing, the miracles, the healings, the words, the bleeding, all those things, he's still doing. You know, I could tell stories all day and all night long about you know, the miraculous and the supernatural and the God-directed in my own life and in others that I know. But, but he is still at work in the world. And he's still leading us in our lives. If we will have ears to hear, as he said, to follow him. As we follow him, we'll find life unlike anything we ever understood outside of him. Okay. I think those are all the questions. Thanks, guys, for the time. We just got to call it a night. So, um, we just pray. Close up there. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these students and just for their, uh, man, just their uh, devotion to this. The fact that they're taking up their Saturday nights to have this poignant conversation for I know means that it's meaningful to them. And Lord, we do just pray that where I fail, you would continue to, to speak. And where your truth was communicated, Lord, I pray that it would just resound more clearly and more articulately um, in their hearts. Lord, give us clarity, give us wisdom, give us direction. Because God, you are a good God. And we love you. And we want to live out a life of love to this world. Um, even as it doesn't love you, it rejects you. Lord, help us to fight, but fight well for our friends and for our culture and our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of the 2017 Outpost Podcast. See you next time.